0: Welcome to the Adea DPL Podcast. In this two part episode, DPL's David Lau and head of Inside Information, Bob Veras, discuss new product discovery tools for RIAs and industry trends. You're now listening to part one.
1: Welcome today for A Day at DPL with Bob Veras of Inside Information. Bob has been a longtime writer and thought leader in the financial services industry, focusing on the profession of providing financial advice. He is someone I have personally read for a very long time and is somebody I find to be incredibly insightful. So I'm really happy to have Bob on for today's podcast. So welcome, Bob.
0: Well, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having
1: me. One of the things we've spoken about and I find really interesting is the notion that this industry this financial. We're going to jump right into it here. Get in deep. Financial planning industry and profession is really Evolving, you know, it continues to evolve, and you know, has been has been around for a while. Of course, I see the value proposition of advisors changing, the expanding services they provide changing. You know, what are some of the trends you've seen over the course of your career in writing about and observing and and providing thought leadership to the financial planning profession?
0: There has been a constant movement toward being on the side of the consumer rather than on the other side of the table, if that makes sense. The brokerage firms and to some extent the independent broker-dealers have gotten really good at pretending they're on the same side of the table as the, yeah. as the consumer. And a lot of advisors who charge by asset center management, it, I, I would say the center of gravity of the fee-only world is not totally on the same side as the client. They're, it's interesting, when you walk into an advisor's office, The first thing they say is, well, you need me to manage your assets. Otherwise, I can't get paid. That That's a big conflict of interest, and to me, that puts you on the other side of the table a little bit. There are a lot of other issues, but I'm seeing more and more advisors who don't necessarily require that, and I'm seeing more and more advisors who ignore some of the conflicts that that there might be or, or mitigate them. There's a constant evolution toward fewer conflicts. There's a constant evolution toward being more independent. There has been, I think, unfortunately, a, a trend toward firms getting bigger and bigger, but At the same time, I think the bottom is being replenished as well. Bigger firms are gobbling up smaller firms, but then people are leaving those bigger firms and starting their own firms and replenishing at the bottom. And I think we're heading toward kind of a steady state process where we have a bunch of large firms, a certain number of regional firms, and then some center of gravity being smaller firms that are constantly being replenished, growing maybe getting vacuumed up, and then people leaving again, replenishing again. Now, two biggest trends I see now. One is the value proposition is shifting from managing assets to being an advisor, a pure advisor. And I think that's really what most professions are. We're moving toward being a real profession. You're not a real profession if you're charging on something else other than your advice. If you're charging on a service you're providing, it's not really being a profession. It's not really adding. And and the asset management is increasingly a commodity and and an accommodating service rather than the core value proposition, if you will. We're not there yet. Some of the people that I talk to are there. Mm -hmm. My newsletter audience is thought leaders and unusually thoughtful advisors. Most of them are there, but that's a skewed view of the profession. Most advisors are still gathering assets and not providing the holistic advice and not charging for it know in, in a professional way if that makes sense advice is the value proposition the future yeah the other major trend is that advisors are meeting their clients face to screen now rather than in person mainly because they're averse to dying and 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 killing off their clients um, we, we do a conference we do a conference every year last year we canceled our conference and I explained why. I said that so far our conference has 100% survival rate and we're really proud of that. <laughs> and we're hoping, hoping to maintain that. Because clients are becoming more comfortable with this face-to-screen relationship, with this video conferencing relationship, it means that Advisors can work with clients anywhere. You know, you and I are talking across the Mississippi and it's, it's not an uncomfortable conversation. We, we can have a, a relationship this way. And that means that every advisor in the country will soon be prospecting all over the country, everywhere in the country. And that means everybody's competing with everybody else. And the kind of the subtrend of that is that advisors are going to have to develop. Yeah. They're going to have to work with a subspecialty of the human race, not everybody that walks in the door.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that's really important. Focusing on the first trend for a little bit, you know, that's something I've seen. I've been, you know, working in the industry, you know, for about 17 years now. And you see, you know, kind of the legacy, you know, the AUM model still dominates. You know, it is moving away from that. Everybody's doing pure AUM. There's also planning fees or, you know, people who have different models like subscription or hourly or, or things like that. But it seems AUM still kind of dominates. And I think that's kind of a legacy, of the earlier years of what the industry was doing is really managing assets. And that's kind of evolved from just managing assets to being more holistic in the financial advice. But it's the AUM model has kind of remained as that legacy, almost proxy for a retainer fee at this point.
0: The AUM model is, I think, an artifact of the sales model. You're still talking about closing clients. The AUM is basically a trail commission, right? It's a trail commission on mm-hmm. the entire portfolio. When C-shares were created, they were created to mimic the AUM revenue model and they work perfectly for people who are selling C-shares. You're selling AUM. I did a survey of advisors Across the profession, right before the COVID outbreak, actually is when the survey responses came in. 100, 1,037 good responses from advisors all over the country, and you know I was curious what they were doing, and so I asked every question I could think of. Um, you know, their their upfront planning fees and how much they were charging, their revenue models, how they charge for assets if they do. You know what the what the amount is, 1.5%, 1%, what the breakpoints are, what they believe their hourly value is. And your specific question, I, I got a couple of surprises in the data. Um, one of them was kind of a mild surprise, if you will, but I asked everybody, what is your primary revenue model? What is your revenue model for most of your clients and your best clients? 72.9%, 73% basically, said it was assets or management. That was a mild surprise because I, I, I thought it would be closer to 100%. If I'd asked that question five years ago, it would have been 100%, I think. 14% said their primary revenue model was flat fees, either quarterly or monthly. And then there were some XY planning network respondents who were using subscription fees. And 2% said they're charging hourly. That was a small surprise. But um, prepare yourself for the bigger surprise. I'm, I'm, I, want you to, I want to see your face preparing for this now. <laughs> Just 37% of the respondents were AUM only, and that stunned me. What does that mean? Well, 33% are charging AUM for some clients and flat quarterly or monthly fees for others. 13% AUM for some clients hourly for others, 6.5%. AUM for some clients and subscription fees for others. An assortment of others are charging hourly for some and quarterly for others and so forth. But the the obvious point here is most advisory firms, two-thirds of them, are starting to experiment experiment with their fee models. They're trying to get some experience with other fee models with some clients.
1: Do you think that's driven by the firm for their own purposes, wanting to get away from it? Or is it driven by the clients looking for a different type of billing model?
0: Well, and of course, I, I, I asked that question in kind of a different way. But basically, why why did you accommodate certain clients and not others? I said, you know, did you do this because your wealthiest clients We're asking for a different model, and the answer was overwhelmingly no. 96%, I think, said no. I asked, did you accommodate or create this new revenue model for younger or not wealthy clients in order to be able to work with them? And the answer was more than 66%, yes. So basically, what I'm, I'm seeing here is that advisory firms are starting to recognize that there is this blue ocean of clients who haven't accumulated a large portfolio but would benefit from financial advice. I think that
1: that whole movement is really interesting in a, in, a, in a couple of different dimensions. You know, one the consumer demand or the client demand or desire for, you know, different billing models, the notion of that you point out often, you know, that being a professional and having a profession, you shouldn't be billing, you know, based on how much money does somebody have, you should bill on your expertise and and your services is really interesting. But I because I see it tied as well with all the firms, you know, I've worked with over my time in the industry, I think the the AUM model also affects the way the advisor perceives themselves. And their own value proposition. There's still some you know, evolution going on as to the fact that my real value proposition is more than just asset management. You know, there's still many in the industry who, who view their primary value proposition as managing assets. You know, I think is you know really interesting, probably you know, in the eyes of the consumer, very untrue.
0: The comment I would make is that the advice is the is going to be and, and increasingly is the value proposition. And so what the AUM model does is turns clients' eyes to the portfolio as the, as, as the value proposition. You know, I'm charging on the portfolio, but advice is really my value proposition. That doesn't make a lot of sense to, to clients. It's not a message you want to send to clients. But the other thing is, you know, other, and, and every other profession charges in some other way. I, one, of, one of the things I say is no other profession, when somebody says, you know, how much are you going to charge me, your answer is, I'm not sure how much have you got. You know, that, that's not really a a great way to for a profession to operate. And I don't think it's it's going to last that much longer. But beyond that, AUM is kind of a lazy way to charge. Instead of doing the hard work of assessing how much work a potential client is going to require or determining your internal cost to service that client, figuring out your profit margin up front, you just do a mathematical exercise and you're done. That's not an appropriate, I think, way to charge for the services you provide. And I think it doesn't align, you know, kind of as
1: as you're saying too, with what the client is wanting from the relationship. One of your points, you know, for advisors as they market themselves is to talk to clients about what, you know, what are the client's goals? What are they looking for from the relationship? And the answer is generally not, I just want you to manage my assets. You know, it's I have end goals in mind that I'm wanting you to deliver for me. And so I think, again, that AUM model kind of puts the advisor in a, in a mental place where they're not necessarily putting value on the same thing their client is.
0: When a client comes into an office, I've never heard an advisor say the client, when the advisor says, well, what brings you here? What, what do you want in this relationship? I don't think any client ever has said, I want Two million dollars within eight years. Right. I think any client has ever said, given a percentage return figure, and if they do, run for the exits because that's not the client you want.
1: Agreed. My ending point on this is, you know, you see this evolution. I think it's all good. I think it's it's difficult to get away from that AUM model one because it's it's often lucrative. And two, it's an easy way of, of billing. Like you said, it, it's much harder to track hours, estimate time and, and effort towards you know, different clients as you know, other professions do. But I think evolution that is happening and you know, a trend that is going to continue as clients you know, look for different billing models from the advisors they work with.
0: I think the AUM model will be extinguished when the last aging baby boomer who looks like me finally dies.
1: <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's got to be generational
0: one of the things i just talked about earlier was the niches i i think there's going to be a lot better deeper advice coming when somebody is specializing in a particular kind of client then they yeah. can offer much deeper and better advice you know you're you're talking to a doctor who's just come out of residency and instead of managing that doctor's portfolio, which which doesn't exist at this point, mostly what they have is student debt, um, instead of instead of that aspect of, of their life, you're helping them negotiate their arrangement when they join a doctor's um, group practice and, and how much they'll be compensated and how they'll be compensated and what the best practices are and if they start their own firm, their own office, I mean, what the – Right software is the best billing software. The best, um, you know, insurance for doctors. All that stuff is not taken into account right now because most generalists don't know that stuff. Um, when advisors start to specialize, and I think they will, the value advice is going to go up exponentially. And that's gonna be a really interesting period in people's lives. A financial plan is gonna be very customized to the types of people that advisors are working with.
1: I agree with that. I, can, I mean, I can see that value myself, right? As an entrepreneur, Um, I got recently, you know, an email solicitation from an advisor saying I specialize in entrepreneurs and that was appealing to me. Definitely appreciate that niche, you know, being a way of differentiating and a way of the future, particularly, as you said you can now do business nationwide. I mean, you don't have to worry about, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, how many you know, entrepreneurs are there.
0: An advisor told me a story once years ago about how a business owner came into his office and the business owner was clearly depressed and not expecting a good outcome from the meeting. And so the advisor stopped the meeting. He said, well, what's wrong? And the, the business owner said, well, you know, I've talked to three advisors um, already. And they said, they can't work with me. And the the advisor said, well, what, what was the problem? He said, well, I don't have a, a a portfolio. I don't have anything. And this advisor said, well, you know, I, we can, we can work this out. You know, we can have a, a different arrangement and, and I want to help you. And I think I can help you. So let's, you know, you, you can pay me appropriate fees. And so 10 years later, maybe, maybe 15 years later, that business owner sold his business for $20 million and the $20 million became money that this advisor was managing. And so another advisor came to this advisor and said, how did you get that client? He said, I specialize in people who've sold their businesses for $20 million and more. That's my, that's my focus. <laughs> and the advisor, and it turns out that that guy who specialized in people who, was one of the people who turned this business owner down 15 years ago. Yep. So I think, you know, being able to work with people where they're at is really the point of your, your revenue models and, and specialization.
1: Yes. Turning the, the conversation to another bit of evolution relative to DPL, we look to continue to help advisors evolve and serve their clients better and more holistically, bringing commission-free insurance to the RIA market. And we face the uphill battle of dealing with the legacy perceptions of insurance and annuities. But I really think what we do is one of the most impactful and important things you know for the only fiduciary advisors you know over the last decade or more what we do apart from bringing the products to market is give advisors technology and tools because these can be complicated products and apart from the commissions and complexity that have plagued the products in the past it makes them difficult to compare and find good value for your client, so that's really what we want to focus on here at DPL is low cost, commission free products, but also the tools to find the best ones for your particular client needs. And I know you got a demo of them the other day. Any any thoughts relative to some of the some of the tools you took a look at?
0: Well, I, I have some broader thoughts. I, I I don't know if you remember yeah. we first met, but it was at a local a local chapter meeting, I think, if I remember right. And there there were some pretty boring exhibitors at the local (laughs) chapter meeting, and I was trying to avoid making eye contact, and then I saw your (laughs) booth, and and I, I thought, well, that's interesting. And at the time, I had been writing for decades about the fact that the consumer revolution had somehow bypassed the insurance industry. That's right all of the things that were happening elsewhere had not happened in the insurance industry transparency um the, exactly. the elimination of the middleman you know the the sales getting rid of the sales model and letting consumers buy things directly or you know and so yeah. i think If you remember, I asked you a whole bunch of questions about, you know, what is this about and how is this? And I was delighted to see that you were consulting with insurance companies to create and advocate on behalf of, mostly on behalf of consumers, although, of course, the advocacy was also on behalf of fiduciary advisors who are advocating for consumers. You know, you've got to make everything transparent. You've got to make it um, you, you've got to eliminate the commissions, you've got to eliminate the fat, you've got, to, you, you, you've got to show people that this product does this particular thing without a lot of hidden costs and fees. And, and I, I have to commend you for going into the insurance offices where this was a hostile concept <laughs> and saying yes. there's a market for this. There are people right. who want you to join the consumer revolution to be part of what everybody else is doing, which means you know here's the um so and and of course the, the first two questions I asked you were, can advisors actually bill on these assets in in the in the the portfolios if they recommend an annuity, can they bill on those annuity assets and and the answer was yes, we can do that. Um, my second answer, my question was: Can advisors put this asset into their portfolio reporting software? And the answer was mixed. At that point, it's not mixed now. Right. They can do that. So those were those were, I think, two big obstacles in the professional realm, and yes. and at the same time, the the products themselves were overcoming what I consider to be the major obstacles in the consumer realm
1: like you said i mean so part of my you know thesis like you were exactly right i mean somehow what's happened in the rest of the world and and almost every other industry has bypassed the insurance industry. And that was, you know, a real driving uh, motivation. And, you know, in the opportunity I saw, you know, to, you know, hopefully disrupt, you know, the insurance industry and bring, you know, price comparisons and transparency, you know, to products that I think are important uh, for, you know, consumers and retirees in particular. And, one of the you know one of the things is when you know, like in the annuity world. Let's think of the annuity world. How, how do you price shop an annuity? And you've never other than like a SPIA, you know, single premium immediate right. annuity, something that's you know super, you know, super easy. Just look at the payout rates. Um, you know how do you compare? And and that is a problem right and if you look at the average cost of an annuity that you know the variable variable annuities are the you know largest selling annuities in the marketplace there's two trillion dollars of variable annuities in the market and the average consumer with a you know $200,000 variable annuity policy is paying about $700 a month to own that policy and they have no idea. So that was part of what we wanted to do when we are you know, bringing these tools to market is give people a way to understand you know you know, compa- you know com- basically price shop and, and value shop you know across all different kinds of annuity types.
0: The tools I saw I would compare to when Morningstar came out with its service back in the 1980s from mutual funds, two things had to happen: first, the mutual funds had to go um, fee only they had to they had to go commissionless and yeah. In order for Morningstar to be valuable, the mutual funds had to be willing to give them the data they needed so advisors could do all sorts of searches and see the different aspects of the funds, their performance over different time periods, their internal expense ratios, their turnover ratios, and so forth. There had to be a willingness by the mutual fund industry to disclose this data and bypass the sales. Then there had to be a search tool that allowed that democratized the the ability to to find products that that met the needs of the clients or consumers in, in, in the cases of people who are directly subscribing to it. And those two things are now in the early stages of happening in the insurance world. We have some products that are being distributed without a sales force. We have the willingness to disclose and and be transparent about the, the different aspects. And now you're creating tools that allow people to go in there and take a look at what's available and, and search and sort without having to sit down with every single product and, and say, all right, what does this product do? What does that product do? One of the circles of hell requires you to read perspectives. <laughs> For all time, for eternity.
1: Yeah, 700 pages worth. I mean, our goal in this is to sum it up when you think about products and tools is to bring products to market that can be used, not sold by a, a consumer or an advisor and to be able to use technology to, you know, to find the best ones. So that's a really radical thought in the industry that we work in insurance. It's, it's always been insurance is sold, not bought complete lack of transparency to the products. And, and that's what we're really focused on changing. And I think just like the advice industry continues to evolve, you know, we continue to evolve. We continue to make progress with technology and with the products. There's always a long road to go, but pretty happy with the progress we've made to date.
0: What I thought was interesting was, and this was true with Morningstar as well, the best quote unquote product is different for different situations. What is it I want this investment product, basically, is what you're talking about, this investment to do. What what kind of a guarantee do I want? What kind of an income do I want? What kind of a structure will best fit this very specific client situation? And I remember when when I used to write about the Morningstar screens, every advisor had different screens and sometimes different screens for different clients based on, you know, what their, their risk parameters, were their tolerance was and issues. And, you know, now it's all about portfolios. But back then it was about actively managed funds. I saw exactly the same thing in the guaranteed income analysis. I have a client with this particular need. How do I find something that that fills this particular need as opposed to? And then you can look at, and what I really wanted was to be able to look at the, the, the different aspects. I want somebody to have all the different Features in the prospectus put into one place. And what instead I got was a phone number where I can talk to somebody at DPL who will summarize that stuff and explain the difference between this and that. Maybe I have three products I want to look at. What is it?
1: So we give you right now directional guidance as to, like you said, starting with what's the goal for the client, what's the need, and now let's find the products, regardless of product type, you know, that do that job most efficiently and, and do it the best uh, based on your, your particular client and their needs.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, go to DPLFP.com and subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify.